Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Authentic Woman. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and I'm very excited about the show that we've got for you tonight. We're going to talk about the United States Constitution, which is uh, something I, I think we hear about it a lot, but unfortunately, a lot of us really kind of don't know what's in the Constitution or all of the nuances of it. And my guest tonight is a constitutional scholar, and she has written an annotated guide to the Constitution that really explains pretty much every line item of the document so that anyone can, can understand how we got there uh, historically and, and apply to present political issues. Her name is Linda Monk. She is a journalist and an award-winning author. The name of her book is The Words We Live By, and it's been extremely popular. Uh, she just re-released the book this year, talking about the new issues that have come up in our society and in our politics. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Linda Monk. Linda, welcome. Thank you so much, Shannon. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, I am, I'm so glad that you're here, and this is such an important topic. It's the fundamental document on which our government was based, and it's. Uh, I think more people really need to understand it. We have a lot of people who are political junkies, watch the news, and hear something about a Supreme Court decision or uh, the Electoral College and don't really understand the basis for it. And this is, this is where you live. You've, you received the American Bar Association Silver Gavel Award, which is the highest honor for public education. You're a graduate of, of Harvard Law and you're a contributor to nationwide papers and you're, you're known as the, the Constitution Lady. So we are very, very fortunate to have you. So first, tell me what made you decide that you wanted to write this book? Well, I, um, as you say, I've, I've spent all my life really dedicated to the Constitution. I had written a previous book on the Bill of Rights that took a similar approach, and then I was approached by um, a publisher, Stonesong Press, to uh, do this book with them, and given my previous history, it seemed like a great match, and um, I like the idea of taking what I learned in Harvard Law School and making it accessible to everyday citizens without, quote-unquote, dumbing it down, and combining the history along with the legal Supreme Court analysis so that you get a sense of, not, of, of both the historical debate in the beginning when the Constitution was written, how things have changed historically since then, what the Supreme Court has had to say about it, but in my opinion, most importantly of all, what American citizens have had to say about it, because really we the people as American citizens are the final word on what the Constitution means. We're used to thinking it's the Supreme Court, but really by passing a constitutional amendment and then by our own actions in our day-to-day -day lives, we're the ones who are responsible for interpreting the Constitution. Very true, and, and in this book you, you definitely give give people a lot of ways that they can learn how to interpret it and, and how to apply it. Now, you spoke of the Bill of Rights being your first book. We're coming up on the uh, anniversary of the ratification of the Bill of Rights, and, and I'm, I'm a native Virginian, and, and I know that was accomplished by Virginians having done that. Tell me a little bit about the anniversary and, and what exactly that means to the country. The anniversary, I think this one is 224, uh, 224. Next year will be 225, so it's a little magic date there. Um, as you know from the book and from Virginia history, the 
biggest obstacle to the ratification of the Constitution was the fact that it lacked a Bill of Rights. And most Americans today would say, what do you mean? It didn't have free speech. It didn't have freedom of religion. Uh, A lot of those protections that we think about as most important to the Constitution, no, they weren't there. And in fact, they had a bill of rights had been proposed and the the framers voted by state state delegation unanimously to say no we don't really think we need a bill of rights well when the constitution then went to the different state conventions for ratification or approval and that's the part of the constitutional process that really makes it democratic certainly not democratic by our standards today, but by the standards of that day, uh, constitutional scholar Akil Rita Marsh says it's the most democratic event the world had ever seen, that ratification process where, sure. uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's really nothing like that had ever happened before in the in the history of the world. And sometimes I think Americans can get a little overboard by thinking we're number one in everything, but in this particular thing, we were number one. And that's why our Constitution has become such an important uh, example in that way. Um, anyway, so when they went to the state ratifying conventions, and Virginia was an important one because Virginia was a big state, Um, that was the big debate. Is there going to be a Bill of Rights or isn't there going to be a Bill of Rights? And as you may know, Patrick Henry was a big opponent to the Constitution because he thought the state's rights should count the most. And James Madison was uh, the leader uh, in the Virginia Ratification Convention. And basically, out of that process, Virginia agreed to ratify but strongly suggested a Bill of Rights. The state where I live now, North Carolina, said, no way, Jose, we're not ratifying this until you give us a Bill of Rights. Uh, so uh, out of that process came what many people would think today is the most important con- part of the Constitution, what are those first ten amendments. Most definitely. It's, it's amazing that that was, was the main sticking point uh, because we, we just think of it as a given and we think of it as, like you said, the, the most fundamental part. So it's fascinating to me that in, that in history uh, that it was a compromise to, uh, to even get the Constitution ratified. We have to be careful with the Constitution because it's full of compromises. But there's also, I think in terms of the Bill of Rights, it wasn't just a compromise, it was a requirement. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's why, you know, it, people forget that, um, and I go into this somewhat in my book, that when James Madison then, he runs for Congress from Virginia, and the voters of Virginia insist, we're okay, we're counting on you to get us this Bill of Rights in this first Congress. And he goes to the first Congress, and um, he's trying to get the Bill of Rights enacted right away, and Congress stalls. And people mm-hmm. make fun of him. People in his own political party, the Federalists, make fun of him. Oh, Bill of Rights, Bill of Rights, you know. Oh, it's just a parchment barrier. Ha, ha, ha. But at the same time, New York and Virginia are already talking about having a second constitutional convention because it's been three months since they've even uh, proposed a Bill of Rights. So can you imagine, here's James Madison, whom we respect so much today, and he's having to fight to even get the Bill of Rights once he gets in Congress. So, 
we um, have to remember that the Constitution was a product of a long, contentious debate. The Bill of Rights itself was the product of a long, contentious debate, and we're still debating it today because that's our job as citizens, is to continue debating yeah. what this really means. It's true, and it's and it's. I mean, and the fundamental debate is still there. I mean, the the states' rights versus the yep. centralized federal government. The the very fundamental debate that our founding fathers had, we are still having those today. And I think that that. I mean, it speaks to number one, the longevity of the document, but number two, the the, the very fundamental difference in ideology that exists within this country. Right, and and. Chief Justice John Marshall, who was the fourth Chief Justice longest serving and probably the most influential in regards to the whole issue of state versus federal rights, he said, our country is going to continue debating this issue as long as it exists. It's something that's hardwired. You know, it's hardwired in our country to say, you know what, a lot of times we think the government that governs best is closest to the people. If that's true, that generally means on a state and local government uh, level. But also in this country, we've had such a strong history of enslavement, prejudice, discrimination against minorities of race and gender, etc., that we know that sometimes it takes a decision at the national level that's then more fair to the people who are in a political minority within their home state. There are good arguments on both sides, and that's why it tends to be uh, often a balancing act. Right, right. Our societal constructs continue to to morph and change, Mm -hmm. and and that Mm -hmm. sometimes happens in in different locations first, and and then it spreads throughout society, and so uh, do, do we you know, do do we put a legislation in like gay marriage nationwide, exactly. or leave it to the states? You know, and that's um, well. We'll get into get into the issues and details in a second. Let's let's start by just kind of going through a little bit about the actual document. Uh, one okay. thing that I found so interesting is that uh, the the preamble to the Constitution does not right. grant any actual rights. The the liberty is not guaranteed, and I, and I think that people do not know that. A lot of people assume that liberty is something guaranteed to us. So explain a little bit uh, about that. Well, it, as you know, the preamble is that one sentence that starts the Constitution. Generally, a preamble in other forms of writing is known as an introduction, And it was the part of the Constitution that was written toward the end, and the wording was changed substantially. But I also think it's uh, our mission statement as a country. That's, That's the way we should look at it, our mission statement. And it says where the power comes from in our country. It comes from the people. It doesn't from the, come from the king or the president of the Supreme Court. We, the people, have the power. Where do we put our power in this Constitution? That's when the president takes an oath to defend the Constitution. Every reference point is to the Constitution. However, how, what the Supreme Court has ruled is that, that any of those um, – phrases in the preamble are, again, an introduction. They're setting a general theme, but is not an independent source of rights. For instance, this will sound familiar to parents today, there's a uh, the blessings of liberty clause 
in around the around 1900, a gentleman from Massachusetts who didn't want to vaccinate his children said to go to school said that this was an uh, infringement on the blessing of liberty, and that's when the Supreme Court ruled said no, you know really. Um, there's no independent grant of rights in that. It was well-established law at that time that the states had control over the health, education, and welfare of their citizens and so could make these kinds of laws. And so they said nothing in the Constitution changed that. Right, absolutely. And so the the first three uh, articles of the Constitution, they, they lay out the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch with the checks and balances. Uh, yeah, and you said it in the right order, too. Great, because that, <laughs> that is invariably, and, and I've even done this with some pretty high um, government officials in the room, and say Article One protects or sets forth, and everybody says, the president, and I have to go, no. <laughs> it, it, it protects the most important branch, and what is that? The executive, no. <laughs> It's the legislative branch. That was the branch the framers thought was the most important. That's when they put it first. And guess what? Just about half of the words in the entire Constitution go to Article One, go to Congress. That's where they right. thought the power would be. Well, and that's the people. I mean, those are the, the it's a large body of representatives, and it's the representatives of the people. Um, and so it, it sounds like there was quite a bit of, of debate as far as which branch was going to get how much power in the checks and balances. So tell me a little bit about the history of how they how they ironed this one out. Well, the, we kind of look at it in retrospect and say, oh, you know, checks and balances and separation of powers, but... Other constitutional scholars say, wait a minute, it's really three different branches sharing powers as opposed to entirely separate powers because, you know, usually if the president has one power, the Supreme Court or Congress can check it in another way. So they're really sharing these powers, whether it's, say, Congress has the power to declare war, but then the president's commander-in-chief, and we're seeing that tension even today, Congress has... Um, seldom declared war in our most recent, or say our last 30 years. But but right. certainly if you ask um, the men and women who have sacrificed their lives and put their lives on the line, there's not a distinction between that power in terms of its effect on them. So... Um, when you're looking at how the if you're looking at how the framers came up with these different branches and ideas, the thing that for you to remember is that Congress is the thing that came pretty much from our previous Constitution, the Articles of Confederation. Remember, this is our mm-hmm. second Constitution, not our first right. one. And the first one had problems, or else we wouldn't have had the second one. Then, what you also want to remember is that the presidency was kind of created out of whole cloth. There really wasn't a lot of model for that. The president of the Congress, which people say, well, that was the first president of the United States, not really, because it wasn't an executive the way we think of it today. You know, in England, it's a prime minister who is still part of the legislative branch. In the United States, the president has a separate branch unto him or herself. And because that person was then chosen, we like to say today, by the people, but it was never really intended that it be chosen by the people. Yeah, this is if you want to pick one part of the Constitution 
that is working a way that's least like what the framers intended, it would be the election of the president. Because nobody ever thought, at least in the Constitutional Convention, that the president was going to be chosen by the people at large. They thought that the electoral, that's when there's no right to vote for president. Remember we learned that in Bush v. Gore? There's no right for individual Americans to vote for president. Each legislature gets to decide how that state decides to choose its electoral college representatives. And the electoral college is who chooses the president now. The framers thought the electoral college would be like a nominating convention. They thought that in a country as big as ours, even then, that it would be very seldom that one person would take the entire electoral college. And so you'd have a nominating convention. These various states meeting in their state capitals, would um, the, the electoral college meeting in the state capitals, would then pass on names to Congress, and it would be chosen, the president, by the House of Representatives. And you know how they would vote? by state delegation, one vote. So it's the least democratic way you could ever imagine any president being chosen was how they thought the president would be chosen every election. And there was a debate about that. So how did they determine, how did they determine that they would go with the electoral college? Well, um, they spent more time debating the presidency and Article Two than any other process. And I know some people that we think of as quite famous, like George Mason, who drafted um, the Bill of Rights for the state of Virginia, said to put a, uh, a trial of the office of chief magistrate, that's what they called the president in the debates, to the people would be like putting a trial of colors to a blind man. No disrespect to the visually impaired, that was his quote. So um, the framers were by no stretch of the imagination small-D Democrats. Um, right. They were not people who thought popular election was. In, in fact, at the time that the Constitution was presented, um Pennsylvania was the first state to say a popular election would determine electoral votes. And it was uh, after the Constitution was ratified. So at no state that participated in the Constitutional Convention um, supported popular election for the choice of the Electoral College. So we really can't say that the framers supported that. What they did talk about was the House of Representatives would be chosen by the people. But then the mm-hmm. Senate was chosen by the state legislatures, and then the president was really going to be chosen by the House of Representatives. So right. they were not big fans at all of the people choosing directly their um, leaders. Not at all. That really is something that has so evolved over time with technology. We've also changed who we think we the people are. I mean, the framers sure. were all white men of property, and they were perfectly happy with white men of property being the only ones who could vote. John Adams being, you know, leader of the pack in that regard. He said, well, if you give men uh, who don't own property the right thing, right to vote, next thing you know, women and children will want to vote too. Um, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin was the, great, was the great advocate of popular vote, and my, one of my favorite stories from my book is, Franklin tells a story of, well, you know, there's a man in a 
a town that I know, and he's not very well educated, and his opinions aren't very well formed, but he owns a jackass worth $50, therefore he meets the property requirements and he can vote. Now, over a period of years, the man acquires more education. He acquires more wisdom in his political opinions. But his jackass dies, and the man cannot vote. He says, so tell me, who has the right to vote, the man or the jackass? I love that story. I mean, that's and, and this book, this for the listeners, this book is filled with with little snippets like that from historical figures and from current political figures. Um, all, I mean, she's got a she's got a sidebar that that tells that story right there as as part of how this nation unfolded. And I just that's that's one of the things that I love about it so much is that you really put it. It's not boring at all. You, you you put it in layman's terms, but like you said, you don't dumb it down, and you really kind of tell it like it is. And uh, and I I just think that's a fantastic approach. And I'm surprised that that's not something that's done more often because it's such a a brilliant way to present a document so that people will you know be more interested and more likely to really dive in and understand it. Well, I appreciate that very much. I mean, it certainly makes it more interesting for me as an author to write about. And um, I I do believe that, unfortunately, we can look back on documents like the Constitution that have survived a long time and think, oh, well, they just should be parchment under glass and we shouldn't touch them and they should just be these abstract principles. But they came out of real debates with real people who had real opinions and prejudices and virtues and uh, all of it's part of the story and and that's what i'm hoping uh people will enjoy learning about and trying to figure out well what's my role in this process well sure sure and and one of one of my favorite quotes that you have is uh from chief justice john roberts that it's not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices and i just find that um, I mean, it really kind of sets apart and, and says, you know, you, you guys have this responsibility, so we need to take this responsibility seriously because we can really mess, we have the power to completely mess things up if we want to. Well, and it's very interesting that some of his own conservative allies have accused just uh, Chief Justice Roberts of doing exactly that, of messing it up, I mean, who oppose him on, Obamacare, but support him. I mean, he was very vehement about his opposition to uh, marriage equality. So um, it's it's very interesting that that some people are having to look at that quote again and say, well, maybe he wasn't everything I thought he was going to be, positive and negative. Right. Well, and, and you've got something from Justice Robert H. Jackson. Uh, we are not final because we are infallible, but we are infallible only because we are final. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's it's humans running running the government and and interpreting things, and everybody has a different interpretation and and has throughout history. Right, and even sometimes the justices will later admit they were wrong. I mean, for instance, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor has uh, since given a quote saying that she thinks maybe, the, not maybe, she thinks the court should not have gotten involved in Bush v. Gore when it was before the Florida court. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was a decision that had big consequences. Again, positively or negatively is up to your viewers to decide for themselves, whichever side you were on. She said maybe we should have just let that one say okay. You know, because at the time she 
was one of the leaders to say it, it was like she was very offended as a justice of the Supreme Court that she felt like the Florida Supreme Court was kind of like thumbing their nose at the U.S. Supreme Court. But now she's since reconsidered. Well, that was even even when they're final, they're not really final, is what I'm trying to say. Um, Right? They um, it it takes the American people deciding what they're going to go along with and what they're not. I mean, ultimately, that's the power of the Constitution is whether or not the people are going to respect the court's decisions or not. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I think the 2000 election was, I mean, it was kind of a master class for Americans on uh, the, the Constitution and, and, and on, the, at least with the electoral process, how um, how it works. And, and I think people did learn a little bit more that year than probably any other year in the last century. <laughs> that was the Well, that and, was the and hopefully, hopefully some members of Congress learned. I remember when when the the issue came to fruition and under pre-existing statutory law the decision should have been made by congress back back when we had that uh similar uh decision back in the election of of um, <clears throat> 1876 they passed mm-hmm. a statute to congress did to say okay in case this ever happens again here's how we're supposed to do it and that law was in effect and my my opinion as a constitutional scholar was that that's what should have happened. Now, George Bush, given the political makeup of Congress at the time, uh, would have prevailed. But it would have been right. according to pre-existing statutory law that every member of Congress should have known was supposed to go into effect then. And Tom Daschle, who was majority leader of the Senate at that point, I think made a very political decision to distance himself from Al Gore and say, "Oh no, oh no, this shouldn't, uh, this shouldn't be decided in Congress." Well, and then turns out he lost the South Dakota seat after all. But it should right. have been decided in Congress. That was their job, and I think uh, the the country and the court suffered a lot because Congress didn't step up and do its job. Then that's my that's my personal analysis as a constitutional scholar. Well, and that's, uh, I mean, that's an important analysis because you, you, I mean, you live and breathe this. And that's, um, I mean, I think a lot of people that the term legislating from the bench has has really become part of our popular uh, vernacular since then uh, because people are talking about how much power the justices have and do they feel like there are activist judges, you know, because of their right. conservative or liberal leanings. Yeah. Right. And well, and in, in, in you, you may be younger than I, but I can certainly recall when those same words were used against very liberal judges who were establishing desegregation decisions. So mm-hmm. people tend to use the term activist based on their own political leanings when it should be an activist court is one that's overturning legislative decisions. Whether you're for or against them, an activist court is one that says, okay, um, we don't have to really listen to what the popularly elected uh, majority say. And there are times, of course, when it's the job of a court where fundamental rights are concerned to strike down legislative actions. Um, right. But then the question is, what are those fundamental rights who decide? And it still comes back to the judges. So they're playing that key role in our system until we, the people, decide to amend the Constitution.
Absolutely. Well, and that's and and I think the fundamental rights that is a question, uh, you know, like the definition of marriage. It's been in so many different state supreme courts, and and they all have made various different decisions, and and then there have been uh, constitutional amendments in states, and then the decision got to the Supreme Court, and they said this is the law of the land, and right. that is it is being interpreted. Uh, 20,000 different ways. I mean, everybody you talk to um, has a different opinion about that decision. What is your take? I want to say that in my book, I was pretty clear about Bush v. Gore because I did feel there was a, um, there was a a clear statute that was in place that Mm -hmm. that was not being addressed. And that, that was, that was really disconcerting to me. Uh, but by and large, I mean, what I try very hard to do in the book is, of course, I have my own political opinions, but I try not to let them color the book. What I try and do is set out what I think is the best case for any argument. Um, and then you decide as a reader what you support and don't support. In terms of, you can call it gay marriage, you can call it marriage equality, I um definitely was honored to have in my law school class Evan Wolfson, who got a B on a paper for proposing marriage equality. And I think uh, the professor thought it was just, you know, you're out of your mind for thinking this. And I think many Mm -hmm. people who have been, had their relationships, intimate relationships protected by the law in terms of marriage, um, haven't questioned it, as often people who are protected don't have to question it. And right. I think many people, uh, I know many people, the president has said this was true of him. Um, I know it's true of other political leaders who used to be very strongly, no, we we do not support gay marriage, period, 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 period. And these are people that we would think of as very, quote-unquote, progressive today, Hillary Clinton being one. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important is that, and this has happened throughout American history, the people who fight these cases are the ones who know it's important. They're the ones who know it's important and keep bringing the case over and over and over again <clears throat> until the court acts or until the American people act in the sea change of opinion about, as you know, about marriage equality has been phenomenal. I certainly never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and I think it's, more and more people are discovering, well, we've always had gay families. We just didn't acknowledge them as that or didn't protect them by the law, but there have been gay parents and lesbian parents for a long time, just like there have been people in the military who were gay and lesbian. Uh, We're not creating anything new. We're just acknowledging what exists. And to say that those families deserve protection. And... um, you know, what I think is happening, and um, I'm a believer, so so I do think that in terms of religious marriage, that is something that the church governs. The church governs marriage in terms of religious marriage, just like they do in Europe. They have a civil ceremony and they have a religious ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that if you have religious beliefs about marriage that are so important to you, that you need them to be a certain way. Well, that's what your church is for. You know, that's what your church is for. 
but in terms of law, in terms of rights of visitation in hospitals or adoption, um, who would want to say that those families don't deserve some kind of legal protection? I, as as a person, I I think that there are things that we accept in this country that I may not agree with different points of view. I may not agree agree with different beliefs, but the law is there to protect everybody. You know, this may sound funny coming from a a constitutional scholar, but I really do believe love counts. And, you know, the, the, the expression after the marriage decision was love wins. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that there are people who strongly believe that according to their religion, um, same-sex marriage is not authorized, don't believe that it's moral, whatever. That's their religious beliefs. But, you know, it's not loving to say to someone who's built a life together, you can't visit each other in the hospital. It's not loving to say that... Um, you have to have a higher tax bill, even if you've spent 35 years together, as in the Windsor case. Um, and I think love counts. The law is the law, but eventually love does win. I mean, that that uh, we support, usually in, in our law, we support people who want to take on responsibility toward each other. You know, right. if you want to say, hey, I want to be held to a standard where um, I have to legally support this person, I have to provide for them, et cetera, et cetera. Usually we're saying, yeah, we're all for that. Uh, right. Because we're we all want people to take up. responsibility for one another in their relationships. But, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's similar to, to, to suffrage and to citizenship. I mean, talking about all of the amendments to the Constitution that were granting rights that uh, that were not granted in the original document. Uh, it's citizenship to African Americans, giving the vote to African American men, giving women the right to vote. I mean, all of these things are these people are wanting to step up and take responsibility, and these people are contributing positive members of society, and so we're saying more power to you. And, and that is something that I think it's important to look at how the um, this process has evolved in the sense of that we look to constitutional amendments to eventually uh, be the the final protection. And mm-hmm. I guess I want to make clear that the reason that we're talking about the court decision being final is because enough Americans have changed their mind about this issue that a constitutional amendment uh, prohibiting same-sex marriage is out of the question now. And that used to not be the case. In fact, people forget, I mean, now we look at the um, Defense of Marriage Act, people say, how could you ever do that? How could you ever be supportive of that? Well, I remember that it was definitely a technique, a tactic, to keep a constitutional amendment from passing at that point, which it would have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whenever we're talking uh, um, an amendment to um, abolish same-sex marriage, and um, so so we have to look at, you know, when, when we're protecting these rights, it's a process of evolution, process of evolution over time. Sometimes we look at a statute, 
sometimes we think, well, that statute really wasn't a good idea, except maybe it really did keep a constitutional amendment from passing then. If, and if a constitutional amendment had passed then, where would we be today? So, Right. Absolutely. Well, and and I recently uh, read some information that you uh, passed on about the uh, 13th Amendment, uh, which yes, just turned 150, yes. but it started out, it could have gone completely the other way. Tell my listeners a little bit about that story. Many of the founders were slaveholders at the time, and at the time the, the Declaration of Independence was issued, slavery was legal in every state or every colony that mm-hmm. became a state. Now, 13th Amendment, when um, Abraham Lincoln was elected and then um, you had Southern secession after that, there were multiple attempts in a variety of ways to try and keep the South from seceding or to, uh, even after secession, see if they would um, uh, come back into the Union quickly and without a war. And one of the proposals for that was what was called the Corwin Amendment, which would have been the the 13th Amendment. And essentially what it said was that uh, no constitutional amendment could ever change, um, could ever abolish slavery within a state, and that that was unamendable. So it would have forever uh, said that the Constitution could not be amended to abolish slavery within a state. And Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, supported that. He said, well, that was his understanding of what was implied law under the Constitution anyway. And it was, you know, four years later that we have a 13th Amendment that abolishes slavery. And for me, that's an important reminder of even when we got the abolition of slavery, it was contingent. You know, it shows what a phenomenal change had happened in that four years. And so that we go from a constitution that could have protected slavery for forever to now assuming that at some point that would have been challenged in other ways, but it wouldn't have been able to be challenged in the constitution. The states could have decided on their own. And who who knows what would have happened. But the point is to remember that it wasn't a constitutional amendment that really abolished slavery. It was the people who had been enslaved leaving slavery. I mean, here in um, eastern North Carolina, where I live, James City was to emancipate, or to people who wanted to be emancipated, what Philadelphia was to the founders. I mean, they just left the plantations. There had been a battle, and the Union was in control of eastern Carolina, and there was a mass migration of former slaves from the plantations of east Carolina to set up their own city. I mean, people were emancipating themselves, and they weren't going back. Right. That's what yeah. the 13th Amendment, when it finally abolished slavery, was reflecting, that there wasn't a sure. going back. Society already made the change, and then the, the document solidified it. Well, and it made it harder. But then, of course, uh, as we know, even with it, my, my point in my article was that even with an emancipation amendment, that 13th Amendment. It was a good hundred years before slavery by another name was attempted to be abolished, and we're still living with the consequences in the remaining 50 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, we, just, we just need to be really humble as Americans, looking at our own history to say, you know, these institutions that lasted for so long and were so hard to root out, 
we still live with the with the consequences of that. We do. We absolutely do. And it's I and, and I mean we're so young as a nation in relation to world history that you know we think of of 225 years as 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 a really long time but um in the in in the grand scheme of of the history of civilization on earth it's just it's a blip and so it's going to take a really long time to evolve for you know all of the changes that are happening i mean like the equal rights amendment uh it, we were so 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 close <laughs> and and then it and then it didn't happen and we're three three states shy of of ratification and i think most people most people think that the Equal Rights Amendment was passed in the 1970s. You know, they, they just they, they know it passed Congress, and they know that it went out to the states. And because they're not paying that much, you know, attention to the constitutional process, they hear the ERA and they think, of course, we have the ERA. Of course, women have equal rights under the Constitution, but we don't. So, uh, well, and this this may be where I where I am a little bit more controversial um, with your audience. And it's not because I, well, let's say, I fully support equal rights before the law. And I mm-hmm. think the most successful person who has helped achieve that is Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. And because of, I mean, she is for, for gender equality what Thurgood Marshall is for racial equality. But because yes. she's very modest, and I think a woman, her accomplishments aren't trumpeted as much as they should be. I mean, she was a one-woman dynamo for changing a lot of the 14th Amendment jurisprudence about the protection of um, race and, I would, excuse me, about gender discrimination. And by the way, we used to always call it sex discrimination, and she's the mm-hmm. one who started changing the language in her briefs, gender discrimination, because she thought it didn't quite sound appropriate before some of the snickering men. She has done so much, and I don't, we should not um, diminish the extent of what she's done. And I fully think that regardless of whether we pass an Equal Rights Amendment or not, and there are plenty of people, Justice Ginsburg among them, who says we should do it just as a matter of making sure it's actually in the Constitution. There are other Uh very progressive um, scholars, Akil Reed Amar, who says an ERA is totally unnecessary because the 14th Amendment, as it was originally understood, fully protected these kind of civil rights. What I'm, mm-hmm. Here's what I'm afraid of. And, this is, and I think people who, who um, consider this need to really pay attention. Look what's happened to the 15th Amendment in the hands of this current court. In the hands of this current court, in Hawaii, where uh, there was a fund to support Native Hawaiian people, and mm-hmm. it was it was a it was a, a fund for damages to be paid to Native Hawaiian people. They were the only ones to benefit from it. And mm-hmm. under Hawaiian law, it said, okay, well, if these are the people who are deciding how we're going to spend this money that we say belongs to Native Hawaiians. Then we're going to say that only Native Hawaiians could run for this office because it's deciding how they're going to get their money. The Supreme sure. Court struck that down as illegal. No, no, no. The Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy leading it, said, no, that's unconstitutional race discrimination, and basically Hawaiians should get over it. So just remember that in 
something that says, and I know this sounds atavistic and sounds like it's not progressive and sounds like, but I'm here to tell you, I'm a woman who supports equal rights. Um, sure. I am worried that there will be a court that uses that to say absolutely no protections, say domestic violence, any of those kinds of things that normally the law bends toward the experience of women. Uh-huh. I mean, that's basically what the court said in the Hawaiian case. It doesn't matter what the Native Hawaiians have experienced. That's race discrimination. Ah, uh, so like the Violence Against Women Act that was that was just uh, renewed a, a few years ago, I think three years ago, uh, you, you feel like that would potentially be endangered were we to have the Equal Rights well, Amendment and, and that to be I'm, I'm, oh, I I'm saying <laughs> I'm saying that I... I'm very proud of what Justice Ginsburg has accomplished. No, we're not mm-hmm. there yet, okay? But I'm very proud of that. And I do think that when you introduce, this is just constitutional. You're asking me as a constitutional scholar. Right. And that means that, as um, um, uh, as has been said before, that uh, Marshall said it, that nothing in the Constitution is without meaning. Okay, it's a question of do we absolutely have to have a separate amendment to do this, or are we just going to have to start all over again with that amendment? Right. You see what I'm trying to say? And so mm-hmm. I just, mm-hmm. I, I just want, um, you know, I'm in the age group that I remember when the ERA was around the first time, and I remember what right. the arguments were against it, and I remember how close it got and then didn't get, and I remember at that time. In the early seven to mid seventies, how necessary it was. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question is: We, as people who would support a potential constitution amendment, all of us need to look at: Okay, what is it we think that we're getting, and what is it we think we're not getting, and be very clear about that. That's that's Absolutely. what I'm asking as a constitutional scholar. And, sure, because uh, I mean the equal the as it was written by Alice Paul, it, it fits into a tweet. <laughs> it's under 140 characters, the entire text of the Equal Rights Amendment. And so it, it is not very very specific at all. So so you think that perhaps uh, it, going forward, clarity is, is of the essence. Yeah, and, and I want to, and, and I believe in drafting it toward, to fix what we think we're going to fix, okay? Uh-huh. So if we've interpreted the 14th Amendment to mean X, Y, and Z, okay, what is it we think we're going to establish clearly? And, and again, my example is the 15th Amendment. I think it's just kind of astonishing, but that's where the current court is, that the state of Hawaii is trying to select people who would choose how money that's supposed to benefit Native Hawaiians, you know, that they can't say, oh, you know what, you really need to be a Native Hawaiian to be on this. Kind of like maybe you need, uh, at least unofficially, to have a law degree to be on the Supreme Court. You know, we don't call right. that discrimination right. or illegal discrimination. So uh, that that's uh, – I just think that people who are considering a proposed amendment to the Constitution, regardless of what it's about, whether it's equal rights based on sex or whether it's – which is the term that was – that Alice Paul used, or whether it's 
on any other criteria. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds like I'm deflating women's rights, but no, I'm not intending no. it. Like, I'm saying um, just like Thurgood Marshall had to do both as an activist and then later on the court is to decide, all right, where do we want to go? So, okay, we can put it in the Constitution. You think that means it's over? No. It's just a whole new set of arguments. Right, right, a whole new set of arguments. That is a perspective that I've not heard before, and that's that's, that's very valid. Yeah, most definitely. Well, and and like I say, uh, Justice Ginsburg just recently said that she thought there should be an Equal Rights Amendment, if nothing else, than to have it legally in the Constitution. So if anybody gets to make that decision, to me it should be her, because she has done the most to make the 14th Amendment really fully protect not just women, but also there was a a husband of a military member who was going to be denied. um, No, actually it was a a husband that was going to be denied certain benefits, of a military member, and she mm-hmm. pursued that case and won it. So a man won the protection, but it was so that his wife would be treated equally. The notorious RBG. Love her. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, too. And it's so it's one of those interesting pop culture references where if you could pick a more proper, opera-loving, amazing woman... Uh, and I'm very indebted to her because she did the foreword to my first book on the Bill of Rights. And then for her to be associated with an in-your-face rapper who's saying, yeah, the notorious <laughs> RBG, little miss, you know, five foot, 98 pounds, in-your-face <laughs> about equality before the law. It's like, it's just wonderful. I think that's why it's been so successful. As a, definitely. people who don't know about it, uh, a Twitter meme about um she is she's she's the 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 person who's been the the great champion for equality mm-hmm. before the law men and women she's done it back to the the fundamentals i mean this is one of the reasons we have the the different the different branches because i mean you can only do a lot of this from the judicial branch when you're dealing with some country as large as we are with as many different factions and as many different states. And and changes that legislators don't always necessarily keep up with. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, she she picked her cases very well in the sense of it was a woman who wanted um on base housing. I believe that was the the exact criteria the case for her family. And the men mm-hmm. got it but the women didn't. I mean, right. those are very, and, and it, it takes, like you say, the authority of a court that, and and who's going to be perhaps more sensitive to those changing dynamics that haven't been reflected in the electoral process yet. Sure. Well, and those are the things that come across in the court cases that are very, very specific about very, uh, very specific events, very certain circumstances that are necessarily going to be considered when legislation is being drafted. I mean, you're you're right. making a decision about, yeah, yeah, most definitely. Right, and you just have to remember that argument when it's something you don't agree with, say, when the Ku Klux Klan is not marching in downtown Skokie at a time when there were many, many Holocaust survivors there, mm-hmm. and for a court to rule that they had the right to do it. Now, they later chose not to march, 
but um, the Constitution is there to protect the people you don't like and the people you disagree with. Yes, it's true. It's true, and that's, I mean, that's the the beauty of, of this country. Well, speaking of the, the KKK and, and, and freedom of expression, freedom of speech, in the, the Bill of Rights, uh, we we do have limitations to uh, the freedom of expression and the freedom of speech, and I, and I think a lot of people don't really know yeah. what those yeah. are. Talk a little about well, that. Well, and and let's let's make a blanket statement there. Every right in the Bill of Rights is limited, and that includes gun rights under the Second Amendment. So mm-hmm. every right in the Bill of Rights has some limitations. It's just a question of what they are. Um, right. In terms of First Amendment, it tends to freedom of speech or religion. It tends to be uh, when you're when you're exercising your rights affects the rights of someone else. Uh, Thomas Jefferson gave perhaps my uh, best definition of religious freedom. He says, um, "It does me no harm for my neighbor to believe there are twenty gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg." And so the the notion that you have a right to believe whatever you want to, think whatever you want to, those are inviolate. It's when you start acting on those beliefs and thoughts uh, is where then um, the court and other Americans start considering what the limits to those rights should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. And you mentioned specifically, okay, well, liable, you're a journalist, so liable, slander, that's, one of the limits. In fact, I find it interesting that in the debate over Bill Cosby and whether or not he assaulted multiple women over periods of years, that uh, one of the the legal tools that's been used against him now is that even though he settled with these uh, with multiple women, he's made statements about certain women that now he can be uh, sued for libel. And he'll have mm-hmm. to prove whether or not it's true or not, uh, because these are not necessarily women who were public figures before that. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how that that plays out. But that's one of the examples of limitations. Another one is a direct threat, um, say whether it's a direct threat to a person for harm or whether it's uh, a plan for violent revolution in the United States. And then the question becomes, how specific is it? Is it likely to lead to imminent action? Uh, there are a series of cases that say that students don't have the same First Amendment rights in schools that that adults would have vis-a-vis right. the government. So those are a couple yeah. of examples right there. Well, and one that is that, that's really, I think, in the forefront of the public mind right now is hate speech because there's there's a lot of uh, animosity uh, among groups and between groups and and coming from from some public figures uh, and a lot of people are are questioning where the line is drawn and I know in your book you say that 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 is still up for interpretation so what is your take on uh, where the line is for for well what the what the court has said is that it can't be um it can be used as an enhancement in terms of sentencing like mm-hmm. um if you can prove the intent that way uh, but you can't just make a crime against saying hateful speech 
But if something's a crime anyway, like murdering somebody, uh, then you can you can do enhancements and stuff based on that. But um, to just punish hate speech in general, um, um, that's a violation of the, the First Amendment. Unless, okay. and again, then we get into then we get into the specifics of if you say the N word in general, that would be protected under the First Amendment against state action. Versus if you're specifically harassing a specific person, and I think where it's changed in terms of college environments is that the federal government has gotten involved in terms of, well, it's not criminalizing so-called hate speech, but it's saying this can help create a hostile environment for students that are affected by it, and we as federal government who's paying the bills care whether or not you're allowing that. Now, is it directly a First Amendment violation? Um, uh, some people argue that the, the ninth, Title IX has gotten a little bit ahead of where the rest of the law is in terms of usually to, to prove a hostile environment, there has to be some specific unwanted acts. And now right. what some conservative scholars are saying is, wait a minute, Department of Ed, you've gotten ahead of the law here. You're saying now that it doesn't have to be unwelcome. You know, usually if someone said or did some kind of content like that, you would have to specifically say, stop it. And then right. you could talk about hostile environment because you've already told them to stop it. And now right. what some conservative scholars are saying is, wait a minute, uh, you don't even have to go through the unwelcome anymore. Although, you know what? If a fraternity puts a sign out saying, moms, leave your daughters with us, and I'm really watering that down in terms of what they actually said, I right. mean, is that going to make me, either as a parent, as a student, think, wow, women are really going to be treated respect in their educational privileges here? I mean, come on. Right. Yeah. may not have to go to exactly. jail for it, but uh, at the same time, if if this is what's going on – um, at this campus and it's allowed? What is a threat? And is that a yeah. threat? It could potentially be perceived as a threat, most definitely. Well, our, so, our time is winding down. But oh, like, I, well, but I want to end on the Second Amendment because it's about, okay. I mean, it, it's about the most hot-button issue, especially in this uh, presidential election and, and in a lot of the, the local, you know, state uh, elections that are, that are happening right now. You, you said there there are limitations and we have the definition of well-regulated militia that a lot of people debate. What does that mean? You know, Ben Ben Carson is saying it means in case we need to overthrow the government, we need to be armed. Others are saying it's to you know basically be the national guard. So talk to me a little bit about your interpretation of uh, the Second Amendment and any concrete. Well, I think it's important to remember that it's essentially a liberal scholar who was responsible for what some people are regarding as a revolutionary reinterpretation of the Second Amendment. He wrote an article called The Forgotten Second Amendment, or The Embarrassing Second Amendment, and uh, essentially said that you know, when we talk about rights, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, it speaks of the rights of the people, okay? Well, mm-hmm. that right of the people is also in the Second Amendment, so what he argued, and there were plenty of liberal scholars at the time, I mean, Lawrence uh, Tribe of Harvard said that, yeah, we're talking about an individual 
personal right. And then the question of what that descriptive clause, it's the only amendment in the Constitution that had a descriptive clause, um, Mm -hmm. how, how that relates to the right of the people. And uh, there's argument, George Mason said the right of the people, the people is the whole people. I mean, there's a, there's a, um, there's a clear constitutional argument in that paper. I mean, Akil Rita Marr has also said that, too, that the framers recognized that you needed access to bullets as well as ballots. There is mm-hmm. a trend for that. And whether or not militia became uh, the National Guard, I mean, certainly there was a, a statute that affected that. Whether or not that took away the right of the people to bear arms, I'm not sure about that. But right. then again, my point is, it doesn't matter. We could, we, could, we could get rid of that provision, and still, if the people have a right to bear arms, it still has limits. That's the important right. part. And the part is, what are we going to, as a people, decide is an important limit? And does it mean, uh, I, I do not think you could successfully in this country ban all firearms. And I come from a rural background where, uh, you know, people hunt and they ate what they hunted. And I think Bernie Sanders has made a good point about this. The people who live in cities feel differently about this issue than people who live in rural areas. And it's not sure. to say that, that people who live in rural areas who have always had guns as part of their home and livelihood are suddenly, you know, hateful, horrible, terrible people. So when we talk about gun rights, yes, it's there in the Constitution. There's reasons it's in the Constitution. And then we have to decide as a society what the limits are. And that's, so that's one of those that, you know, the Founding Fathers, they had a lot of foresight for the changes that, that were to come and changes that, that might happen as society evolved, but they probably wouldn't have imagined semi-automatic assault weapons but, at the time. But you can say that about any other, right? You can say they would have never imagined uh, all the electronics that we have that are doing surveillance, but Edward Snowden and others would say, but that still means we have a Fourth Amendment. Personally, I don't think that's a very strong argument that, oh, well, the founders could have never seen an AK-47, so therefore, of course, the Second Amendment didn't apply. It's like, well, there are things that are more lethal that are just as lethal as an AK-47, and we better get rid of those too. Do you see what I'm saying in terms of limits? Absolutely. You want to look at it. What is the limit that protects public safety? And we restrict freedom of speech. When it harms public safety, we restrict freedom of religion when it harms public safety. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like to be, well, the Second Amendment doesn't protect individuals, or it, it, it's, it's like, of course it protects individuals. Now what? Now let's talk about it. And, and that means that you're going to have to be part of society with this right, just like every other right. Definitely. So, oh, I want to have you back just to talk about the Bill of Rights. Will you come back and do another show? And oh, we'll, absolutely. Uh, we'll and and I really enjoyed it. Thanks for letting me. Um, I, I get excited about these topics, and so thanks for letting me talk. And I hope your listeners will understand that there are some topics where it may sound like I'm more liberal or more conservative or whatever, but I keep trying to come back to the constitutional baseline. And um, Yeah, you do. You definitely present... Uh, you know, both or if there are more than two multiple viewpoints on on a lot of issues and and you really do, uh, you know, allow people to come to their own conclusion and and you you ask questions. If our readers want to find you, uh, what is your website? 
It's uh, Linda Monk, L-I-N-D-A-M-O-N-K dot com. And through there they can link to purchase your book on online. Oh, absolutely, uh, wherever books are sold. Well, Linda Monk, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Shannon. I really appreciate I appreciate all the good work you're doing about protecting women's equal rights and fighting against sexual assault and you know, help, helping. I love that title, The Authentic Woman. I really love that title, and I hope you'll uh, include me in that categorization because that's what I strive for. Oh, most definitely. Well, thank you so much, and, and have a, a lovely evening, and I definitely want to bring you back to go over your first book and go really in-depth into into the Bill of Rights. That will be great. I love that. Thanks so much, Shannon. Thank you. Well, this is Shannon Fisher for The Authentic Woman on the Authors on the Air Radio Network. Good night, everyone.